If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, I'll have it there uh, on the screen, but would encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with me. Psalm 13. The psalmist who is King David, he is writing, he is praying this, and he puts it down in Psalm 13. He says, how long, O Lord? And how many of us, even just with that one sentence, can identify? How long, O Lord? Will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me, answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God, again, we pray that you speak to us this morning. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the stories of scripture. Um, God, from the beginning that we see people struggle with such pain and with such suffering, God, but you are present there. You are not unaware. And God, even though we don't deserve it, you are good to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our final week uh, in our series on struggling to believe. I hope that it's been uh, an encouragement for you. We've, we've spent these last few weeks addressing these uh, most common objections to the Christian faith. And so we ask questions like, is the Bible really trustworthy? Is it reliable? Can we trust the scriptures that have been handed down? We've, we've asked the question, how, how can there only be one way to God? What about all these other religions that present other ways? How can there only be just one way? How can, how can people impose their truth or their ethics or their morality on anyone else? Isn't that unjust? We've discussed the problem of hypocrisy. We've, we've uh, discussed how can, how can God be both loving and wrathful at the same time. And, and today, I want to address the issue of suffering, the, the problem of pain, that it brings us to a point uh, for many, um, either even, even whether you are a Christian or not, to question God. If you're not a believer um, or you're a skeptic here this morning, I really pray, or if you've been listening to this, I really pray and I hope that we've been fair with you and fair with your questions uh, and, and how we've identified and framed and addressed all these objections. And of course, I hope this, uh, this conversation for you doesn't end here. Um, and if you've been enjoying this series or been challenged by this series, I encourage you to go online. Uh, all of it's there uh, to listen to. You can get on iTunes or on our website. Go back and listen. But if you are here and you're still asking some of those hard questions, if you're still skeptical, then let me just encourage you, uh, keep asking hard questions. Keep at it. Study the Bible for yourself. Don't just rely on what someone else, including uh, me, don't rely on what anyone else is telling you about what God's Word says. Go to the Scriptures yourself. Read the Scriptures. Take, take the risk to pray. Take a risk to pray. Take a risk to actually engage in conversation with another Christian. Ask them why they believe. What, what doubts did they have before? What doubts do they have now? How, ask them about Jesus. How do they come to this place? 
And if you're already a Christian here this morning, I pray that this, has, uh, that this series has encouraged you uh, and hopefully even challenged you, but I pray that it's encouraged you that your faith, though it's uh, mysterious, though it's complex, though, it's ultimately, uh, though, though our belief in Christ is ultimately accepted by faith, I, I hope that you've been encouraged that it is still reasonable and defensible to believe in Christ. Now, I know that at various moments throughout life, and we, we addressed this on the very first week, that at various moments throughout life, of course, everyone struggles to believe. And sometimes those come in different seasons, even for a Christ follower, in different seasons, we come to a point and we really wonder, is this really what I believe? How much can I bank on this really? And for many, that struggle is most profound in seasons of suffering in seasons of struggle. When things aren't going well, when things feel like they're falling apart, it's in those moments that we go, is God really there? Is he really listening? When we're going through, when we're going through a divorce or struggling with an addiction or sick with cancer or filing for bankruptcy or burying a child. And I know I think there are at least a few in this room, who have dealt with all of these things. In those moments, how, how can God be all-loving? This is the tension. How can God be all-loving and all-powerful and still allow people to experience such pain and such suffering? That's the question. To put it another way, and this is the objection, um, the fact that there is such terrible suffering in the world is proof that God cannot be both all-loving and all-powerful. If he exists at all, the objection goes, if he exists at all, he is either all-loving, but powerless to stop or prevent any of the suffering that I'm experiencing, or if he's all-powerful, then he's just cold or indifferent or, at worst, hateful to us to allow us to go through such trauma and such pain. I'm sure many of you guys remember on uh, several years ago, on January 12th, I think it was, 2010, there was a magnitude 7 earthquake that happened um, about 16 miles from Port-au-Prince in Haiti, the capital city of Haiti. This, this earthquake um, lasted, less than 60 sec- or last, less than, lasted less than 30 seconds and yet sent uh, a, a ripple effect of over 50 aftershocks, and it destroyed uh, something along the lines of 250,000 houses and uh, about 300,000 commercial, or about 30,000 commercial buildings. The death toll, uh, with estimates as high as over 300,000, would make it, at least in my lifetime, the most deadly natural disaster that's occurred. Immediately, over one million people were homeless, like that. Many of those, if you are familiar with Haiti, many of those had little to no resources whatsoever. And then in the aftermath, with with literally hundreds of thousands of bodies dead in the streets, the healthcare and sanitation infrastructure collapsed. 
The, the country just couldn't handle it. And as a result, the disease spread throughout the city and throughout the country. By October of that year, by the end of, nearly the end of the year, as a result, um, disease had spread and the country was now infected with cholera, which was a disease that had been eradicated for over 100 years in Haiti. Today, more than 800,000 Haitians have cholera. As of just a few years ago, 2017, two and a half million Haitians were still in desperate need of humanitarian aid. So just to put it into perspective, because of a, a, a 30 second tremor, eight miles underground, millions of people have been left homeless or diseased or dead and are still struggling all these years later. Now these numbers, for me, when I read numbers like a million people or uh, 250,000 homes, it becomes almost incomprehensible. And there's that quote, you may remember, I may have this on the screen, from Joseph Stalin, that, that one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is just a statistic. And that's how some of us engage that, right? When we hear numbers like that, when we see such terrible natural disasters or moral evil in this world. It's hard to even comprehend. And yet, of course, these are real people. These are real people. These are sons and daughters. These are parents and grandparents. These are lovers and friends. These are real people that were shattered in an instant. It seems, it seems so senseless, doesn't it? It seems so random. In fact, to me, it actually seems worse than random because this terrible uh, disaster occurred in one of those most poorest countries in the world. This is pain on top of pain. This is suffering on top of suffering. So where was God? Where was God when all of that happened to all of those people? Is God all-powerful? Then why didn't he intervene? Is God all-loving? Then why allow so many to suffer so much? Or in David's language, as we read in Psalm 13, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? Where are you, God? This is the objection, and I uh, can empathize. Is When I'm suffering, when I'm experiencing pain, when things aren't going right for me, is, is God punishing me? Is God weak? Is he, is he incapable of getting me out of this situation? Is he a sadist? Is he up there sort of enjoying the pain that we're experiencing? Or is God even there at all? This is where many people stop because they know their own pain. They know the trauma that they've experienced. And they can't come to terms with the existence of God that would allow such things to happen. Because of the real pain and the real fear and the real uncertainty and the real loss that comes with the suffering that we all experience, it seems to undermine that fact. It seems to undermine the story of Scripture that presents an all-loving and all-powerful God. So how do we make sense of it? And, and this isn't even to say something uh, like considering the Holocaust or considering slavery in America. These are not natural disasters that produce suffering. These, these are moral disasters that intentionally hurt millions and millions and millions of people for generations. If you haven't figured it out yet, the world is fundamentally broken. 
We, we hurt ourselves. We hurt each other in profound ways. Creation itself, as seen in Haiti, seems to be against us. It's, it's violent. It's unpredictable. So how do we reconcile our pain with the power and love of God? This is at the heart of what King David is saying here in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me. Answer me, O Lord. My God, where are you, God? Answer me. Essentially, defend yourself. How dare you allow such things to happen to me? Now, the simple answer to the very complex question of why does God allow such suffering is I don't know. I don't know. Scripture says in Deuteronomy 29, I may have this back here too, that Scripture says this, and this may be comforting to you, or this may make you more mad than ever. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Or in Proverbs 25, it is the glory of God to conceal things. Why does God allow such pain in this life? I don't know. I don't know. I wish he wouldn't. I wish he wouldn't, but I think we can learn a few things from Scripture. There are mysteries in this world that we cannot understand. And, and if, if God is God, consider this for a moment, church. If God is God, creator of the universe, knower of all things, if God is God, if you grant that premise, then of course we can't just figure it out. He's infinite, we are not. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. I think I've shared this story before that, that Augustine, early church father, was, was teaching a group of students and he was lecturing on theology and the doctrine of God. And, and one of the students raises his hand, essentially speaking for the class. He says, I don't, I don't understand this. I don't understand what we're talking about. And Augustine replies simply with, well, we're talking about God. Of course you don't understand it. He's beyond you. He's beyond you. He reveals himself, and that's a grace, and that's a mercy. But if God is God, he's not bound by our limited and finite understanding of love and of power. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to lay out the definition for him. And of course, just because we don't understand it or because we can't make sense of it doesn't mean that God has no plan or purpose. Do you hear that? Just be humble for a moment and think, is it possible that there is some sense to this, even if I can't make sense to this? We're not God. In his book, Faith and Reason, Roland Nash says, the most serious challenge to theism, meaning the belief in God, the most serious challenge to a belief in God was, is, and will always be the problem of evil. This problem. Try to reconcile a good God with all the terrible things that happen in this life. But let me ask you this, church. Does the existence of suffering disprove the existence of God? Is that really the right way to think about it? Does the existence of suffering 
disprove the existence of God? C.S. Lewis has this uh, great statement. I I have it back here. This was so helpful to me years ago. Um, C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist for many years, an academic, a professor, um, he had the same objection to God, against God, thinking there cannot be a God if things are going so poorly. And then he wrote this through his conversion. He says, My argument against God was that that universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that I didn't happen, it didn't happen to please my fancies. Consequently, atheists turn out to be too simple. In other words, you see, the existence of evil and suffering is actually a stronger argument for the existence of God and a life beyond this place than an argument against the existence of God. We'll talk about why. If we're only, if we're all only a collection of cells, with no ultimate creator, with no ultimate purpose, with no inherent dignity, if if we are all living in a survival of the fittest world, if there is no ultimate goodness in the world, then there is no real injustice, right? If this is your worldview, then if if your worldview is that that it's everyone for himself, If there is no standard of justice, there is no standard of right and wrong, and I would challenge that I think no one thinks that. I think just the opposite. But if you did, then you would have to consider that that cancer and divorce and bankruptcy and the death of a child, those aren't tragedies. You'd have to. That's just the natural result of only the strong survive. Genocide is only an injustice if there is actually a standard of justice. And we have that in us, right? Every time someone hurts us, we think that person shouldn't have hurt us. Well, why not? What makes you think that you don't deserve to be hurt? Of course, because we all experience the pain uh, of suffering, we believe and we know that there is something better than suffering in this world. That we were made for something better than suffering. We can, we can only know things aren't as they should be, right? We can only know things aren't as they should be if there is an ultimate standard of how things should be instead. The idea that we feel pain is not a problem for God, it's a problem for us. And it's a problem for those who disbelieve in God because where are they getting that sense of injustice? Suffering doesn't disprove God. It proves at least that there is a longing in every human heart. That there is a longing in every human heart for something better than suffering. A belief that we were made for something better than suffering. That we deserve something more than suffering. If you're a skeptic, if you're grappling with this question, how could God be loving and powerful and still allow suffering in this world? First, again, I want to say you're in good company. Even as we read Scripture, this is a common theme. And if you think about the stories of Scripture, my wife and I were talking about this this week. From the beginning, the beginning, 
the first parents mentioned in Scripture, Adam and Eve, one of their sons murdered the other. I don't know all of your stories, but that would be a pretty horrific one. If you think about the pain that Noah and his family had when the whole rest of the planet uh, was annihilated through the flood, if you think about, if you think about the, the shame and the hurt that Sarah felt when her husband Abraham tried to pimp her out to save his own skin, that's pain. When you think about the fear and the, the, the struggle of Abraham with his knife in his hand, ready to kill his son Isaac, that's suffering. When you think about, when you think about Jacob, who, who loved his son Joseph, and who then, with, by his own brother's account, was sold into slavery, into slavery. So if you're the dad in that situation, not only now is your son, first of all, you think he's dead, you think he's murdered, your other children have lied to you by bringing you bloody clothes saying your son is murdered, that's pain enough. But then you realize it actually goes deeper and that your other children were the ones who took him and lied to you and sold him into slavery. That's suffering. The Bible is aware of our suffering. The Bible tells a story of suffering. God understands you. And so I want to say you're in good company. But, but consider again, where did you get that sense and definition? Where is your belief that suffering is bad or not what you deserve coming from? It's coming from somewhere. And would you consider the possibility at least that just because you can't make sense of pain doesn't mean it's senseless? If you're a Christian this morning, the question is there all the same, right? Just like David, we ask, how long, O Lord, how long will you forget me? How long will I feel alone? How long will I be overwhelmed in my suffering? How long, O Lord? And David, I think, in Psalm 13, provides us some perspective and a way forward. And again, let me say that, that David was a man well acquainted with suffering. David lost many of his children. One of his own sons uh, wanted to betray him, wanted to kill him. So put yourself in this situation that, that you have your son, you love this son, that scripture talks about him being just so beautiful and he was a great leader and people wanted to follow him. This is David's son. He loves him. He's excited about him. This son then turns against his family and his father. And not just in betrayal, but in murderous betrayal, trying to kill his own father. And yet his father still loves him. He mourns for him. He wants to be back with his son. And then he finally learns that in battle against him, his son was killed. And David just collapses in this moment. I think it's in 2 Samuel 18. He just breaks down. He says, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, my son, I wish it was me and not you. David is a man who understands suffering and pain. He understands the, the sorrow and pain of his own sin that rippled through the kingdom. He, he experienced the betrayal of his own family. He experienced the loss of many of his children. 
And here in Psalm 13, we get, a, we get a sense that he's experienced pain at almost every level. The way the writer is putting this together in the Hebrew, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? This is spiritual turmoil. This is emotional turmoil. This is external circumstances. Everything in David's life at this point is in disarray. And his problem is made uh, all the worse because he knows that his enemies will be there rejoicing when they watch him crumble. So it's not just that he, he's in pain, that he's suffering. He says, I have all these people around me who are watching this and they're cheering it on. And at the root of all these problems is the question, where is God? And the, the feeling that maybe God's not there. But in verse 3 of this passage, we see David's prayer and his perspective turn. And he says, there's that phrase. I love this phrase. In fact, as we even said it, uh, saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I thought of this. He says in verse 3, lighten up my eyes. You see that there? Essentially what he's saying with this phrase, lighten up my eyes, he's saying, help me see what I cannot see right now. I'm, he, he, there's a sense of humility there, right? There's a sense of humility in the midst of pain. And David is saying, I can't make sense of this. I don't understand this. God, op open my eyes to see what I cannot see right now. Namely, I want to see that you are there with me, and I don't see that now. Open my eyes. There's a, this is... This is not only a, a position of humility, this is essentially a confession, right? This is a confession that maybe he doesn't see everything. Maybe we don't see everything when we're suffering. Maybe we don't have the whole picture. Maybe there's things we don't know. And so how does he cope in the midst of this storm? How does David cope? We see there in verse 5, but I have trusted, there's the, it's the conjunction, right? All this pain, all this struggle, all this turmoil, but I trust in your steadfast love. You see what David's doing there? He's, he's shifting his perspective. Turn your eyes on Jesus. David is shifting his perspective. He's shifting his eyes from his current circumstances, which, are, which is uh, crushing him. And he's looking back to God's provision. He's looking back to God's mercy. He's looking back to God's grace and God's love. Because if you, if you fix your eyes only on your current circumstances, it will crush you. Because you don't have any perspective. And if you pull back a little bit, like David did, and he's saying, look, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to just look at this. I'm also going to, I'm not going to trust in this. I'm going to trust in this other thing. I'm going to trust in your steadfast love and goodness. Even if I have nothing now, even if I have nothing now, I can at least look back on what I had before. Even if I can't trust in my current circumstances, I can at least, God, trust in your faithfulness. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We can't always know why we're suffering. Most of the time we don't. We, we very rarely can see what good our suffering might produce. But we can know a few things. And I, I don't have this in my notes, but let me just uh, leave this with you. Of course you know that you are suffering. 
Of course you have experienced your own pain or your own rejection, your own kind of hurt. Let me just encourage you, that's everybody. As you look into any other person's face, know that you are looking to the face of someone struggling. And be kind and compassionate and humble. We can't know everything about suffering, but we can know a few things. Here's one thing we can know. We can know for sure that suffering can, at least, can. There's a possibility that suffering can have a purpose. Suffering can teach us more about who we are. I'm sure if, if I just open it up to the room, you, you guys have experienced that. Many of you experienced that, that, that in this season of suffering, that you, what you actually came out as afterwards was something better than you started out as at the beginning. Suffering, you sort of grew up through your suffering. It can teach us about who we are. It can teach us more about who God is and God's presence in the midst of suffering. Suffering can, it makes us more compassionate to others, as I said. It can humble us. It can, it can draw, maybe you've experienced this. I think suffering can draw out our strengths like almost nothing else. Suffering can wake us up from our slumber. Charles Spurgeon wrote, um, this is a great quote. I think about this quote a lot. And, and many of you guys know my story. I was born with uh, pretty significant heart problems very early on and um, had to have a pacemaker when I was just a few weeks old. I've had many, 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 many surgeries over my life. Um, and it's just a, a, a thing. That's just, I don't know any different. That's just my life. Um, I don't know what it's like not to have a pacemaker. I don't know what it's like not to have serious heart problems. I don't know what it's like not to deal with doctors and insurance companies and all the struggle, right? I, I don't know a life beyond that. But when I look back, really, if you were to really, we were talking um, I think my son and I, we were having these conversations. We were asking each other these list of questions. Um, and one of the questions was, what are you most thankful for? And I got to tell you, to be honest with you, the thing that, that first came to my mind was all of my heart problems. I think that's what I'm most thankful for. Like it shaped me in a profound way. It made me rethink, again, who I was, who God was, who all the rest of the people I know in my life. It shifted. And, and you know, this, this is why this quote has always stuck with me from Spurgeon. He says, the greatest earthly blessing, the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of his children is health. Except for suffering. Except for suffering. He goes on to say that suffering has frequently been of more use to the saints of God than health ever has. Consider that when you're in suffering. Consider that when you're in pain. As we've said already, suffering not only teaches about who we are and who God is, suffering also reminds us that things here are not as they should be. That this life really is more than survival of the fittest. That it confirms in us a longing for something better than suffering. That's what we want. That's universal, you see. That when we suffer, every human on the planet has always thought, I want something better than this. I'm desperate for something better than this. It exposes, it confirms in us a longing for something better than suffering. C.S. Lewis talks about this longing. He says, it's like the sin of a flower we have not yet found. It's like the echo of a song we have not yet heard. It's like news from a country that we have never yet visited. 
This is the idea that uh, actually King David's son, Solomon, talks about in Ecclesiastes where he says, God has set eternity in our hearts. There's something in us that knows there is justice in this world. There is such a thing as suffering because that's not how God made it. That's not what God wants for us. He wants something better for us ultimately. And so suffering, rather than dividing the skeptics from the believers, can actually unite us. Because at least at base, there is an agreement that suffering in this life is not how things should be. Which is an agreement that there is a way that things should be. Here's one more point. I'll close with this. Christianity, more than any other religion, makes sense of and offers redemption through suffering. Christianity, more than any other religion, makes sense of and offers redemption through our suffering. In his book, Reason for God, and we have a few more copies back there, so if you want to have them, we'll probably take them away uh, after this Sunday. So there's a few books back there for you. In, In his book, Reason for God, Tim Keller says this, Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair and rejection and loneliness and poverty, bereavement, torture, imprisonment on the cross. He went beyond even the worst human suffering, experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love. He identifies with the abandoned and the God-forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He, he, listen to this. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he could end evil and suffering without ending us. He came on a rescue mission to pay for our sins so that someday he could end evil and suffering without ending us. Because we often are the perpetrators of such terrible cruelty and suffering. But he paid for it. The writer goes on, I don't have this on the screen, but if we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Christ, we still don't know what the answer is. However, we know now that the answer, what we, we know now that the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent to us or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and he takes our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. So I encourage you this morning, whether you are a skeptic, whether you're a Christian, consider the cross. Consider the cross. Maybe you're not even yet ready to consider the cross as an actual historic moment where God made substitute for your sins, if you're not ready to consider it as that, which I believe it is, at least consider it as a symbol. Consider what the story of Christianity is telling. Consider what the story of the gospel is, that Jesus empathizes with you. God empathizes with you. He knows physical and spiritual and emotional and relational pain like none of us could experience. We were not made for suffering. And yet, Scripture says we are, we are promised suffering in this world. But for those who are in Christ, for those who trust Christ, we are, we are promised a world with things as they should be forever. 
No more tears. No more death. No more loss. No more pain. No more frail bodies. No more frail minds. Only Jesus and things as they should be forever.